I think relentless focus, knowing what your users want ahead of what they even know what they want, and iterating super quickly. And part of the iterate super quickly meaning launch as early as you can. And welcome back to Off Record with your host, Corey Levy. Today we speak to journalist, author, and startup analyst, Billy Gallagher, who is well known for covering early stage startups like TechCrunch and being an analyst at Costler Ventures. Billy attended Stanford and was in the same fraternity as Snapchat co-founder Evan Spiegel, which he has now written a new book out today on Amazon titled How to Turn Down a Billion Dollars, covering the events that led to its skyrocketing multi-billion dollar success. In this week's episode, Billy talks about how he landed a job at TechCrunch while at college, his exposure to early stage startups while in venture capital, how he met Evan Spiegel, if he thinks Snapchat will become the next Facebook, and tells us about his new book. Does that end any more? We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Off Record. Thank you, Billy, for joining on the show this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I want to start out by having you tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Where are you right now? Uh, right now, I'm back in Philadelphia, where I came back to watch the Philadelphia Eagles win the Super Bowl, but uh, usually I live in Palo Alto. Gotcha, and you're a current student at GSP, is that right? Uh, yeah, second year MBA student at Stanford. And when did you start working at TechCrunch? I started writing for TechCrunch when I was a sophomore at Stanford back in the spring of 2012. My very first article was interviewing Evan Spiegel about uh, Snapchat. Let's talk a little bit about both of those things. One, how did you start writing for TechCrunch as a college student? I was an editor at the Stanford Daily, met Eric Eldon, who was the editor at TechCrunch, and uh, Josh Constein, who was a writer covering Facebook and a lot of social media for TechCrunch, and basically just bugged the two of them until they gave me a job. So is that the advice you would give, or what advice would you give to someone young trying to you know, write for TechCrunch, or get an article on TechCrunch? I know that's uh, a lot of people's interest as well. I think it's a combination of, of bothering people, but also showing you can do good work and will work hard. And persistence is key in anything in the media, but I think also showing you how this stuff is important too. What did you do after TechCrunch? Tell me a little bit about Coastline. Yes, I wrote for TechCrunch for two years, covered Snapchat, Clinkle, DoorDash, a lot of Stanford startups. And then I went to work for uh, Keith Raboy and Ben Ling and the other partners at Coastal Ventures and the investment team, which was an incredible experience. How did that come about? Was that something that you wanted to do or they recruited you? Venture was something that I was super interested in, and the team at Coastal is incredible. So I was fortunate enough to meet Ben Ling when I was still at TechCrunch and, and talk to him and get to know him some, and then met Keith and the rest of the team. And I was fortunate enough that they brought me on to work with them. What did you learn from Keith and Ben? God, I could talk about that for an hour. <laughs> you know, I think especially so early in my career to be working with these people that are so seasoned and to see the way that they talk to entrepreneurs, the way they ask probing questions, get at the really key drivers behind a company. And then on the flip side, once we've already invested a company, the way they give advice, I learned a ton about sort of how to evaluate a company and how different that evaluation becomes when it's at a seed stage, an A, a B, and then how those the criteria really changes. And so I think I really got an interesting look at, at how this ecosystem works and how the very best venture capitalists consider companies. And how do they consider them at the earliest stage? At the earliest stage, it's really about potential and do you believe in the founders? I think one of the hardest things for me to understand when I was early on was when we'd look at companies that were interesting and had like good teams that weren't amazing, good market. And it was sort of a lot of things were like, you could write down Bs for every category, and it seemed like, oh, this is like a reasonably good chance of success, but a low outcome, and, and really wrap my head around this idea that, no, it needs to have a chance to be a grand slam home run, not a double. And so understanding the, the parallel dynamics of the venture industry and understanding that we're really looking for companies that are 
changing their entire industry, if not the world. So I think just understanding that that colossal idea was, was really difficult at first, but then very important for me. Very cool. And let's talk a little bit about going back to TechCrunch. So first article you wrote was on Evan Spiegel. You have a new book just came out, How to Turn Down a Billion Dollars, a Snapchat story. When did you first meet Evan? I met Evan when I was a sophomore at Stanford. We're in the same fraternity. He had already left the fraternity um, at the time I joined, but we kind of ran in, in similar crowds. He was two years above me. And so big personality on campus, had some mutual friends. And so met him a few times socially. And then my new editor at TechCrunch was telling me to cover a story on Stanford. And the two hottest startups at the time were Snapchat and Clinkle. And so started chasing those down. What was the first interview like? Evan was already very similar to what he is today. Cocky, very brash, uh, but also really intelligent. Talking about, I remember one of the, the lines from our interview was he was talking about how he thought the sexting narrative was overblown because it's not as fun as having real sex, which is a pretty funny line to have in the press. He had already had a really interesting vision for Snapchat and this vision, you know, at the time it was still a photo sharing app for iPhones. That'll say something about how far it's come in six years. But he already had this vision for this understanding behind why was the entire internet written in ink and why is everything permanent? Why does everything stick around forever? He already sort of had this vision he was articulating behind how our behaviors change if you take away that permanence. How old was Evan and how old was the company when you first interviewed him? So this was early May 2012. So Snapchat, depending on how you look at it, it was about a year old. And their official birthday, I think they would say like seven months old at that point, maybe eight. But from like when they started working on the original idea, which is called Pickaboo, it was about a year. They just raised seed funding from Lightspeed. And Evan was a senior, so he was about to turn 22. Got it. And did you ever think like, hey, I should invest in both Clinkle and Snapchat? These are the two biggest on uh, on campus for bringing those to, to Coastal. They were definitely the, the biggest two at the time. I was only a sophomore then. I wouldn't work for Coastal for two more years. But certainly they were really interesting ideas. They were really interesting founders, both very headstrong founders. But I think what's what's so interesting about this story and what's taught me so much is, you know, Clinkle was this idea to totally remake the wallet, totally remake the way we do digital payments. It had the university president advising them. They had computer science professors investing in them, students dropping out to join the company. They raised $30 million from all these blue chip funds and really... Uh, powerful and wealthy individuals. And so if you were going to bet on one, you know, that would be the one to bet on. Um, and Clinkle, as a lot of us know, went up in flames, whereas Snapchat, this like weird sexting or like secretive or kind of useless idea with no university president backing them and only 500000 in funding, obviously became the one that's worth billions of dollars and publicly traded. So it taught me a lot about sort of, you don't know what you don't know at the early stages. How do you think controversy has played a role into Snapchat success? I think the company's been controversial since the beginning. I think part of it is obviously that sexting narrative. Part of it is Evan is this really brash figure. And part of it is, is self-inflicted mistakes. Like they've had uh, Evan's emails leaked. They have had several hacking issues that they haven't been that contrite about and haven't handled as well as they could have. So I think part of it is our self-inflicted issues. But I think another part is that a lot of the people at big tech companies and especially in the media are not in Snapchat's core demographic. So you have these say, 45-year-old journalists and, and VC prognosticators and tech commentators talk about the company, and they, they really don't understand why teenagers and 20-somethings are sending all these disappearing photos. And so I think the, the company has really thrived in a blind spot for a lot of people that, that do talk about these kind of things in the media. And today, you know, Facebook's worth over $500 billion and Snap about $16 billion, 30-plus-X difference. Do you think we can even compare the two, Facebook and Snap? I think it's hard right now. I mean, just given exactly what you said, Facebook is such a mature company, so well run, totally global dominant company, one of the most important companies in the world. And they also own Instagram, WhatsApp. They own some of these properties that we consider to be not only core in terms of daily use, but also part of the cultural zeitgeist. But I do think in terms of that, that latter part, in terms of daily use and cultural zeitgeist, snaps right there with Instagram. Still really, really popular. 
still the one-on-one messaging and the group messaging now is unparalleled in, in the culture of use it has and the really as much as Instagram stories is copied Snapchat stories, Snapchat mess is um, still pretty unique. And so I think it'd be really interesting if Instagram were still private or still independent, at least if not private, you know, sort of what the social media landscape would look like. And so I think it is fair to compare Snap and Instagram and Facebook in terms of content, in terms of culture of use, in terms of where are people hanging out and, and what sort of, what is our culture around social media? But in terms of companies and market caps and capabilities, I, I don't think it's appropriate to compare them. Are you long or short Snapchat? I'm long right now. I think the next year is going to be really hard for them. So if it's, it, it really depends on what your timeline is. I think if you're looking at the next year, I'd be short or probably just stay away. But if you're looking to buy this and hold it for a while, I think the upside is so much greater than the downside. I think there's a pretty well-defined floor with messaging, with stories, with things they can do in the feed, getting more revenue out of each user. Even if you think growth is going to be mediocre due to Instagram stories, I think there is a, a fairly defined downside for Snap. Whereas the upside, if they can figure out what the next chapter is for Snapchat, they've shown. I mean, they, they grew this. We were talking a little earlier. 2012, this is a uh, an iPhone-only photo sharing app. And then they created stories. They created GeoFo filters, lenses, they've created all these tools that are super interesting creatively, and a lot of them can be monetized pretty well. And so if they figure out what is the next chapter of Snapchat, and they really nail that, there's a, a pretty large upside, especially given how low the stock is right now. You mentioned Facebook and Instagram stories. Why do you think it took so long for Facebook to successfully copy Snap? And you know, just in general, when Facebook tries to copy something, what we've seen in the past is they haven't really done that great of a job. I think it took some time for Facebook to be humbled, frankly. They attempted to totally clone Snapchat with Poke, and that totally failed because the core users of Snapchat were using it specifically because it wasn't on Facebook. And then the people who were older and not using Snapchat didn't understand the appeal of impermanence. So it was sort of like, who are you building Poke for? Who's the who's the intended user? And it turned out it was no one. They tried again with this app Slingshot that was terrible. And so I think it took a while for them to understand it's not about just copying Snapchat and cloning the app. It's about, okay, what's the best aspects that work with what we have in our portfolio? And Instagram's the coolest thing they have. And so I think one, understanding that Facebook's not really cool anymore, but Instagram's incredibly cool and plays into this demographic that Snapchat's doing really well in. And then not just cloning Snapchat, but taking some of the best elements and adapting that to Instagram. And so I think it just took time for Facebook to understand that it wasn't working with a pure clone strategy, but it could really stunt Snapchat's growth with a new strategy. And what do you think, you know, Snapchat goes from here, like, do you know, fight with Facebook and Insta? Do you think they come out with brand new products, uh, like the glasses? The challenge for them right now is they need to figure out what is the story they're telling to investors? Because right now they're being compared directly to Instagram stories. And both users and investors are saying, okay, I have more followers on Instagram. There are more people on Instagram stories growing faster. Many people really do see Instagram stories and Snapchat stories as direct substitutes. And that whole narrative is a real big issue for Snapchat, particularly because it was never intended to be a social network. If you talk to people, especially from the early days, but even still today, the goal was not to build the next Facebook. It was to create a place with your friends to hang out that, was, that felt more like the real world, more like did away with this contradiction and this division between the real and, and digital worlds. And you see this in a lot of the things that Evan chooses to do. So Evan does not have a public Snapchat. You can't like friend or follow Evan on Snapchat, which would be almost unthinkable for a Jack Dorsey or a Mark Zuckerberg. And then you think about other products they've come out with, like Snapchat Maps. Snapchat Maps is a super interesting product if you have your closest 100 friends on, on Snapchat. But if it's like Instagram where you have there are people who you know, have friends, uh, younger siblings who are 20 years old and they have 
4,000 followers on Instagram. Every photo they post gets 1,000 likes. That's cool, and that's one sort of form of addictive use to coming back to that app, but it's super creepy to then have a map where you are at all times for 4,000 people, some of whom you never even met in real life. So I think the problem for Snapchat is sort of bridging that gap between being compared to Instagram and just fighting for who has the most numbers versus the original core use of Snapchat. And the real problem for them is that the Snapchat stories format they created is so far the best way for them to monetize, and the more eyeballs there are, the more ad dollars you can have. So the Instagram model is working much better for Wall Street, but it maybe isn't what's best for users. Let's talk a little bit about like luck and skill. You know, you've studied Snapchat super closely. How much of it do you think was luck? How much do you think of it was Evan and the team and the skill? Yeah, I think it's super interesting, you know, especially had they agreed to sell to Facebook in 2013 for that multi-billion dollar offer. I think it's certainly fair to say Sky Reggie Brown comes along with this idea for what was essentially at the time a sexting app, and then they kind of catch lightning in a bottle. And had they sold, I think it'd be almost fair to say, okay, that's, these guys got lucky, struck it rich at the right time. But if you look at, at Evan's old emails, a lot of the things they were thinking about product-wise, they were actually thinking about this whole idea that we've talked a little bit about, you know, rethinking impermanent internet really, really early. So Evan, over the course of the first summer they even worked on it, back when it was still called Pickaboo, had sort of this progression of thought from, okay, this could be like a safe way to send your boyfriend or girlfriend or whoever pictures you want to you keep private to, oh, wow, actually, it's really weird that everything I've ever posted on Facebook is kind of kept around forever in this like permanent record of who I am. And actually, we act much differently when things aren't recorded. And so I think that was sort of the, the genius insight he hit on. And then they started expanding the app and creating things like stories that really dramatically move the needle. And so I think they got lucky right at the beginning, which every successful startup has had to have luck. They also had a ton of, of bad luck. So I, I think most of it from taking it from this initial spark, Evan had to have a lot of skill to grow that into the fire it is today. What was the you know biggest thing of, of bad luck that you said that you would think Snapchat had? I would say part of the bad luck, and maybe it's not luck, it's just fighting in this very intense market, but to have one of the biggest companies in tech focus as Tractor Beam on you so early, you know, they were barely a year old when Poke came out and then, you know, they sort of got locked in this battle really early on. So that was tough. And then they've had the hacks, which, you know, you could argue is not necessarily bad luck as much as it's their own fault. And I think they've also just struggled some of the media coverage, getting back to that idea that a lot of people just weren't in their core demographic. And so I think they've had to sort of fight a lot of external things that have been very distracting at times. What do you think founders, you know, from, from all the research you've done, what are some of the big takeaways that you think founders can learn from the Snapchat story? I think relentless focus, knowing what your users want ahead of what they even know what they want, and iterating super quickly. And part of the iterate super quickly meaning launch as early as you can. So I would say the intense focus, you know, snaps managed to stay pretty focused on on what the core use case is. I think there's an interesting, I, I write about Clinkle in the book as well, and sort of draw both comparing and contrasting sort of why one worked and why one didn't. And the big issue for Clinkle is they just, they never launched. And they kept waiting and waiting for this product to be perfect before they put it out there and, and unveiled this grand, perfect product of the world. Whereas Snap came out with this app that was this small little photo sharing app that was buggy, didn't always work all the time. The UI was hideous, but they iterated really quickly and they improved things and they added things. And, you know, the app grew and grew and grew. And they, they learned a ton from the users. And they came out with these things where at first when it was just photo and video messaging, users didn't ask necessarily for stories. They actually asked for group messaging. But Snap focused on stories and made that a hit. And then much, much later added group messaging. So I think that sort of combination of listening to users, but not just blindly doing what they say and actually say, saying to yourself, what are they telling us? What is the problem they want to solve? And then what's the best way long term for us to solve that? Not just you ask for a feature, let's blindly go build it.
And what about like mistakes? So you know, obviously there was a big lawsuit that Snapchat was a part of. If Evan could go back and rewrite Snap, what do you think he would do differently in the first couple of months or year of building Snapchat? Yeah, they've had a lot of people mistakes. They've had a lot of executive turnover. Evan's not the easiest guy in the world to work with. A lot of that also was just growing pains of the company growing extremely quickly. I think the biggest, certainly one of the most costly, is the lawsuit you referred to with Reggie. Anytime you're writing a, a nine-figure check, I think there's been a big mistake. And, and we see this play out over and over again now. The law firm that Reggie had represented him now kind of basically specializes in representing startup founders in lawsuits. And I think this happens a lot, especially with these projects that start in college dorm rooms where it started off with just friends hacking around, goofing off with this idea and quickly became an actual real company. And those growing pains often lead to these, these lawsuits. I mean, we saw the law firm, um, Quinn Emanuel that represented Evan and Bobby and Snapchat represented the Winklevoss twins in the Facebook lawsuit. So it's, there's sort of this inside baseball wheel keeps spinning element to these lawsuits. And I think if Evan could go back, I think he would have, when they decided they had to move on from having Reggie in the company, I think they would have tied it up in a much more mature, professional manner and, and compensated him for his equity and, and tied it up in an actual mature way instead of basically just having a, a fight with a friend that turned out to be very, very costly. All right. What was the coolest interview that you had researching and writing this book? Some of the sources were anonymous, so I unfortunately can't talk about some of them, but I would say the some of the most fun ones we're talking to, there's a chapter in the book called Major Key for DJ Khaled and his uh, Snapchat prowess. I talked to a bunch of different people who have essentially become Snapchat celebrities. And so it's everything from this guy who was a, a high school teacher just drawing Snapchats to his sister, told him to you know keep doing it, keep doing it. And he has like crazy following now and his greatest job does this full time and, and is paid by some of the biggest brands in the world to do Snapchat commercials to this brand, Arsenic down in LA that uh, is trying to become Playboy for Snapchat. Uh, and I actually went over and saw a photo shoot they were doing at their house, which was just crazy to think about this crazy little app that now has all these media companies working on it from from Discover on the official app to these sort of like underground digital magazines to this aspiring actress, Mackenzie Stith, who posts a, sort of a daily vlog and talks to people about anxiety and depression and like messages her users and like has really helped a lot of people to Justin Khan, who most people know from Twitch and Y Combinator who let people take over Snapchat and do pitches for investment money. So, you know, the, the range of use sort of in that chapter and the sort of these little pockets of subcultures that exist on Snapchat, that was super interesting to explore. And when's the last time you spoke to Evan? It's been a little while. When I started covering the Reggie lawsuit for TechCrunch, Evan stopped giving me interviews. So we talked briefly, you know, intermittently since then. Most of the discussions I've had for the book have been with their PR. And why do you think Evan didn't want to be part of the interviews for this book? You know, I don't want to necessarily talk for him on that. I, I talked about this a little bit in the author's note at the beginning. I think sort of two things. I think one is that he is very private and unsecretive. And I think, you know, you talk to any reporters who cover Snap, it's, it's kind of like trying to cover the NSA. But I think also part of it is just that the time I was writing this book was, you know, Evan knew that he wanted to take Snap public and they were fighting off Facebook pretty hard. And so I think, I think a lot of it is just he's focused maniacally on taking the company public and getting Snapchat to where he wants to be and, and anything that would distract him was unknown. But again, those are my best guesses. You'd, you'd have to ask him though. Thank you, Billy, for joining the show. Your book, How to Turn Down a Billion Dollars, comes out today. Where can people find it? Amazon and wherever books are sold. Awesome. Thank you so much, Billy. Great. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you having me on. Thank you once again for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Billy Gallagher. Thank you so much again, Billy, for coming on the show. I'll be sure to get his new book on Amazon. And to truly emulate the success of great founders, you have to capture the behind the scenes of their actions and motives. And I think Billy, who personally knew Evan's new book, would be an amazing read for any aspiring entrepreneur. You can find all of his links in the description. You can also follow your host, Corey Levy, on Twitter at Corey. Thank you once again for watching. Oh, shit. 
Thank you once again for listening, and other than that, stay tuned, and we'll see you again next week for a new episode on Off Record.